Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm your host, Anthony Caldellus. The late Byzantine period is undoubtedly fascinating. By this time, the empire was by far the oldest state on the world scene. It was a surviving fragment of antiquity, and it was coping with a wholly new set of challenges uh, that marked the end of the Middle Ages and the onset of early modernity. So many new things were happening that, in some respects, the late Byzantine period is the exotic era of Byzantine history. Uh, We have, for example, an emperor going on a tour of Western Europe, as far as Britain. In terms of art and intellectual life, it was also a flourishing period marked by innovation. And yet at the same time, as fascinating as all this is, the late Byzantine period can also be a bit of a downer. It's defined chronologically by two of the worst disasters that happened in Roman history. Uh, These are the uh, conquest of Constantinople by the Crusaders in uh, 1204 and the fall of the city to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. And in between those two catastrophic dates, the empire was constantly being pummeled on all sides, despite every effort that the Byzantines made, some of which were quite successful, we still know how that story ends. And it is hard not to let that knowledge color how we view everything in between. We have no hope for them, even if at some times they themselves did. Now, given the legacy of the term decline in our field, it's understandable that many of us try to avoid it and focus on the more positive aspects. And there are many in the late Byzantine period. And here's where today's conversation gets interesting. My guest, Cecily Hillsdale, is a historian of Byzantine and medieval art at McGill University. And she's written an extraordinary book on Byzantine art and diplomacy in an age of decline. She argues that some of the innovative developments of this period were precisely linked to the Byzantines' own perception of the decline of their empire. And that they were part of their diplomatic efforts to halt or reverse it. So in this respect, it was precisely decline that spurred and inspired some of the more interesting strategies. The traditional toolkits of Byzantine soft power were not working as well in this new rapidly changing world, and the emperors and their associates had to develop new tools. So more interestingly, what Cecily shows is that they developed and deployed different kinds of tools in dealing with different potential partners, such as with the papacy, on the one hand, with Italian humanists, uh, whom we might call the influencers of their time, uh, with Moscow and with the Turks. So flexible strategies with different sources of appeal. In a subsequent paper that hasn't yet appeared in print, but which we will discuss, Cecily develops these ideas further using the concept of soft power. Now, this concept is familiar to many of us who follow politics, Uh, It was developed by the political scientist Joseph Nye, and it refers to a state's ability to shape policies and preferences um, of of others elsewhere through persuasion and cultural appeal, uh, rather than by brute military or economic power. The Byzantines did a lot of that throughout their history, um, and they fell back on it increasingly in this period when they had very little money, and few soldiers. Now, in one sense, a great deal of scholarship on Byzantium has been about its soft power, uh, in some sense, uh, but but not systematically uh, or with conceptual clarity, that is, looking at the political science and diplomacy uh, aspects uh, of the question. Cecily's paper, I believe, opens a promising area for new research, uh, and it creates a, a nexus between art history and political and diplomatic history. And this is also a question with contemporary relevance. How does a small but ancient state with a prestigious culture navigate a world of dangerous new powers that could gobble it up if they chose to do so? And who's to say that these strategies didn't actually extend the life of the empire for longer than it might otherwise have lasted? So here's my conversation with Cecily Hillsdale. Hello, Cecily, and welcome to the podcast. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let me tell you what I like about your book, because I, I read it again in preparation for this discussion. And I you know, was underlining all over the place and keeping notes. And at, at some point I gave up. and I'll tell you why. So <laughs> so you're an art historian. Yeah. And and I read a lot of art history. I really like art history. But I understand. So art history, especially Byzantine art history, it has its own sort of priorities. It it, it its own questions, its own methodologies and theories and so on. And, you know, there's a lot of reading of images and how do we interpret images and so on. And you do a lot of that. that that's great. But you also situate art right in the middle of the broader history, political history of the Byzantine Empire, so the late Byzantine Empire. And your book is called Byzantine Art and Diplomacy in an Age of Decline. And I think it's so as I'm writing now a, a new history of Byzantium, I, I kept this is why I said I kept noting things. Oh, I, I got to use this. I got to use this. And my notes are just piling up to the point where I think I'm just going to have to reread the book when I get to that period. Um, so this is very much a, a historian's art history book. Um, so okay. thank you. Great. Um, no, I mean, a lot of art history does that, but you, you situate it right in the middle of all those dynamics. So let's talk about some of the some of the terms that you use in order to do so. And I wanted to start with decline because just the book ends in an age of decline, the late Byzantium. Um, uh, so roughly from the later 13th century, and then you go to the end, uh, the fall of Constantinople. And so I don't know if I should, I should congratulate you for talking about decline. I mean, it's kind of bold <laughs> because, right, our field is kind of in this place right now where we're not supposed to, to talk about decline. I, I've been called out at conferences like, oh, uh -huh. we shouldn't use that word because it makes the feel, it makes Byzantium look bad. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever gotten any that any pushback like that? <laughs> yeah, actually, the very first email I received when the book came out pushed me on exactly that point, which is, you know, just what you want to receive when you publish a yeah. book, especially because it came from my idol. Uh, it came from Ruth McCready's, the late Ruth McCready's, who, you know, whose work has been so influential and everything yeah. I think about the period. And she asked me just point blank, why'd you use decline in the title? And, um, you know, while she acknowledged her position as extreme on the subject, she <laughs> was convinced that the word decline should not be attached to any book on Byzantium ever because we face, as she put it, the Gibbon Brigade. You know, <laughs> by this, she, of course, meant that decline, the word decline, predisposed people to think about Byzantium, what Gibbon did, which was not so great. Um, and in my exchanges with Ruth after the book came out, um, you know, she really prompted me to elaborate my position. So in the end, it was super productive pushback. And I told Ruth and, you know, I'll tell your listeners now that it seemed disingenuous to avoid the term um, when it has so thoroughly shaped both the modern scholarly conversation about the period and also the kind of horizon of possibilities for the Byzantines themselves in the period. So really it's a, a decline is a historical and a historiographic issue. So why shy away from the word? I want to kind of take it on head first. And I know we're going to, we're going to talk a lot about historiography, but I'll just say for now that, you know, one of the questions that my book asks is if there's a way that we can see decline as generative, in some way. And I know this sounds counterintuitive. I realize this, bear with me. Most scholars see later Byzantine art as a paradox and later Byzantine culture more broadly as this paradox because of its vibrancy, of course, in the face of the harsh economic realities and, and this, this reality of decline. And I really wanted to explore how these kind of strange circumstances of the period might have actually prompted certain aspects of cultural innovation. So in other words, to see if if an attempt to improve the political circumstances could be done through culture, right? And that's, of course, soft power, which we're going to talk about. And, you know, I really wanted a book that wasn't just a celebration of the art of the Paleologan period, right. of the later Byzantine period, which, you know, it totally deserves. And, you know, there's the great exhibition and catalog on Byzantium faith and power. But I really wanted to think about art and politics together. And that certainly seem to justify use of the title. But, you know, Anthony, 
titles are complicated, right? You know, anyone who's published a book knows that there's, you know, what you propose in the beginning is never what you end up with, which is always this constant negotiation with the press that is just a series of compromises. Once I even asked if I could have quotes around decline, (laughs) that didn't go over well, you know. No. Ruth in the end actually said I put up a good defense, you know, so I take that, I take that to heart. And uh, it's not just the presses, it's also the algorithms um, that are used by library acquisitions and online. In other words, you want the title to hit as many words as people search for and it gets, yeah, it gets really... No, it's it's a series of keywords. My title is a series of keywords. It's not a beautiful title. It's not evocative, you know, but in some sense... You know, all these titles like The Twilight, you know, all these kind of euphemisms for decline are far more sinister. Just, you know, call it what it is. Yeah. And no, I mean, you're right. So decline doesn't necessarily have to be seen as an absolute, um, uh, you know, negative. Um, And as you pointed out, and we'll we'll talk in in a bit, there are many senses in which decline produce is generative and produces Mm -hmm. great philosophy and great literature and great art. And precisely because of the decline and not not in spite of it. Um, And it's like a compensatory dimension, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've I've recently been started to read Chinese history. And there's the same, I'm noticing the same thing there, that there's this kind of mismatch between the, the great age of the empires and the periods of the most scholarship and poetry and so on. They don't necessarily line up. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, so this kind of awareness of, uh, of, of things getting worse can, can actually propel cultural activity. You, yeah. you, you know, like Hegel's, was what, what was it saying? That, that the owl of Athena flies at twilight or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So, and by the way, it's interesting that you should mention Ruth um, because she actually called me out on the same thing at, at, at one of the conferences. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, she was very, um, you know, very emphatic that uh, she really loved Byzantium and she was very emphatic yeah. that it had to be pulled out from all of these labels that, that wear it down. Anyway. Um, okay. So why don't we um, uh, give, give sort of decline some contemporary teeth that is the byzantines Mm. themselves who were experiencing it they wrote about it they wrote about decline quite a bit and how they were experiencing it Uh, can you talk a little bit about that yeah um i mean it's really looking at our sources it's commonplace for authors to complain and lament their circumstances right not just in the later byzantine period you know our authors complain that's a literary trope right right? yeah but i'm talking about something different you know when i'm talking about decline it's really about not just complaining about poverty right and we, we have great discussions of poverty from our sources like Macrimvaliti's Dialogue on the Rich and Poor, you know, that are really these really interesting texts about, you know, poverty. But but what I'm talking about is um, these kind of pronouncements that express an awareness in a changed temporal order, right, often in haunting terms, so that really express a kind of awareness. So I, I just am going to bring two examples in. Um, one of the most eloquent statements on decline comes from the mid-14th century historian Gregoras, and he famously claims that the imperial crown of his day had lost its gems and just had colored glass because the original gems had been pawned to Venice, which is true. He says the imperial banquet table now used earthenware instead of silver vessels, and you know, especially poignantly that the imperial treasury was empty and had just nothing but the atoms of Epicurus, right? Air right. and dust. That's his dust. Like, beautiful dust. phrase, which I love. I love it so much. I used it as a caption for the second half of the book. Um, you know, but, but what I love about the phrase, the atoms of Epicurus, is that even in expressing the empire's poverty, this depleted treasury, he does so in this kind of highfalutin language, right? He compares it to Epicurus. Um, and this phrase really kind of encapsulates one of the key paradoxes of the period that, uh, you know, Crassley put his no cash, but lots of learning, right? So there's this, it's a great phrase for that, you know, his imagery of the kind of sham pageantry of the once illustrious imperial ceremony. It's strong, it's it's evocative. It's certainly a political statement, right? The state of affairs for him has to do with the civil war with Anne of Savoy and her minister. But the, the statement also reflects a kind of, reflects on a diminished present in relationship to a um, a more glorious past, right? And uh, it does so in, I think, meaningful and evocative ways. And, you know, 
his critique of the loss of imperial aura, right, literally the insignia, the crown, it com it's complemented by the voice of the emperor himself at the end of the 14th century. And here, of course, thinking of the letters of Manuel II Paleologus, which, you know, it's such an extraordinary corpus of, of works. Um, so this will be my second example. They provide, you know, first person, quite emotional responses to decline. And the idea that you could have the scale of a response to decline from the person of the emperor himself is really just kind of amazing. He writes a series of letters from the front, so to speak, while traveling on um, on a Ottoman military expedition in Asia Minor. So he's basically on campaign with the Ottomans. And my sense is here, a little bit of context might be helpful for listeners. Um, Manuel II, crowned and anointed in Hagia Sophia in 1392, his father, John V, had basically in the 1370s submitted to Sultan Murad I. And this was a kind of tributary alliance, which in concrete terms meant that the Byzantines rendered the Sultan tribute, military aid on demand, and attended the Ottoman court whenever they were called upon. And so that was really the operative arrangement between the Byzantines and the Ottomans in the later 14th century. And as part of this arrangement, Manuel Peleologus was traveling through Anatolia with Bayezid, Murad's successor. And so we have these letters that he wrote while on campaign with Bayezid. And in one of them, he reports seeing uh, the abandoned countryside of Anatolia and asking the names of these ruined towns and these cities. And he was given um, a, a response that he found so chilling. He was told, we destroyed these cities, but time has erased their names. And <clears throat> Manuel, of course, laments this and the rest of the letter we hear in detail of, you know, fighting back the tears and, you know, the response to these, these abandoned towns. But, but what interests me in this very short phrase is that there's a kind of attenuated time span here, right? There's the physical destruction which is recent and palpable, right? So we, the Ottomans, destroyed the cities physically. But the memory of Byzantine presence, that's that's long gone. That's ancient history. That's mm. time has erased their names, right? So it's, it's really this kind of heart-wrenching lament about this changed world. And that's this kind of awareness of, of, a, of a shift in the order that is, is what I'm interested in in, these, in discussions of decline in particular. Yeah, it's a sense of like historicity, if you will, right? Yeah, there is a there is a heightened awareness of that, and it comes across in these texts. Uh, so, so yeah, I liked what you did with those texts, because as you said, Byzantine authors tend to complain about the state of the present, you know, like all the time. Uh, all the time. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say. Well, there's you know, um, this is an age of decline because look, they're compl complaining because yeah. they're doing that all the time. Uh, yeah. But the texts that you find, I think, are kind of a different order, especially in the in, in Manuel's case with the kind of emotional tone yeah. that comes through in them. And I think that's that's rare. Um, and you, you know how we talk about Byzantine letters, like epistolography, as this yeah. kind of formulaic genre where, you know, you rarely find any actual personal, real, real like it's rare. Um, right. Well, it's not it's not that rare, but. Um, they are formulaic, uh, but not not those kinds of sentiments like that. Mm -mm. That's pretty uh, unique. Um, and, you know, he also he in, in Manuel's letters, it's even though they are they're extremely personal, there are certain tropes like he just like Gregoras uses this kind of highfalutin classical language. You know, he brings everything in comparison to the past. Right. The Ottomans are the Persians of his day. He describes himself as Odysseus, you know, right. so there's. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. And you highlight the classical references here, which are not just formulaic. And this is kind of a large part of the point of your book, that the classical references are in many ways compensatory. Um, yeah. They're trying to find something to ameliorate these, these dreadful circumstances. And yeah. they're finding in certain contexts, right, they're finding that their classical learning can do that, can play that role. And you, you talk about how Manuel uses Plato and Grigoras uses, you know, references to the atoms of Epicurus and, and, and all that. And we'll, we'll get to why they might be doing, like how it ties into broader projects of, mm. of Byzantine survival um, at this time. Um, just, I just want to finish up about the concept of decline. Um, and I have the sense that when studying late Byzantium, it's far more common to draw this distinction between political and imperial decline on the one hand and kind of 
cultural productivity and originality and just flourishing of scholarship and art and so on on the other. And yeah. I think that's pretty common in this period um, because it's, it's also kind of obvious on, on, on both sides. This is actually very, um, it's much more difficult to make in earlier periods of Byzantine history. I, mean, I just wanted to say that, that in earlier periods of Byzantine history, um, we have developed sort of traditions of scholarship that tend to see all of those things as unitary. In other words, if there's decline in any one area, there must be in all the others. Mm. And it's very difficult to argue that, no, wait, so like in the 11th century, you have this, they lose Asia Minor, that's pretty serious. Yeah. But there's also like economic and possibly demographic growth going on. And they're about to start in, you know, a great age of, you know, cultural production and rhetoric and philosophy and so on. And it's, it's difficult to make that case because everyone will say, oh, you know, you argue for decline here, but look, there are all of these texts. And I'm like, yeah, those are different things. But anyway, um, so, but it, so we're, okay, so we don't have to defend the concept of decline here, um, at, at, you know, in terms of imperial history. Um, however, you do warn against the problems of teleology. Yeah. Um, that is, especially the link between decline and fall um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about where you see that problem? Um, I have I have some thoughts of my own, but I, I wanted to hear first what, what where you think that problem is. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I definitely want to talk about that. I would actually like to say something about what you were saying about the decline and the different um, different spheres of a society. First, I had a kind yeah. of thought I yeah, wanted yeah. to bring about that, which is that you know I think in in any period this assumption that culture follows economics. Is, is flawed in its logic. You know, I think that this idea that, you know, um, oh, what a paradox, how strange that the arts are doing well when everything else is a disaster. You're implying that culture, whether it's literature or poetry or art, that they should be dictated by economics in a straightforward right, way. Right. You know, but I, I think most social historians of art certainly <laughs> would, would recognize that there's actually an asymmetrical relationship with between culture and politics, right? This is you know, we're not vulgar Marxists here where, you know, the base determines everything. I think that, yeah. I think that, that, that that's really the issue. So, but I think what's distinctive about the Paleologan period, you know, as opposed to the 11th century is the starkness of the contrast in some sense. Like it's a question of scale about how, how bad, how bad was it? Sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's commonplace in scholarship to talk about this disjunction between culture and politics in the period. You know, Nevra Nechapolyu, you know, points out that it's like a cliche um, almost to talk, for scholars to talk about it this way. It's become so habitual. It's like a, a knee-jerk reaction to make this comment, oh, it's so strange that the arts are flourishing in times of decline. Um, but, you know, what's distinctive about the Paleologan period is both how dire things got, but more importantly, the fact that it's right before the so-called end of the empire, right? It's before the fall of the empire. So, you know, what seems distinctive is this sense of imminent ending, right? The weight of the fall of the empire that has dictated the way we understand decline in the centuries leading up to it. So, you know, we can scratch our heads and wonder, oh, how is it possible that you can have these amazing frescoes at the Church of the Cora or these exquisite micro mosaics for the first time on the eve of the end of the empire? But, you know, the patrons and artists in the 14th and 15th centuries didn't personally think that the empire was ending, Right just declining. And decline, you know, implied the possibility of rejuvenation. It was quite distinct from end. So, you know, we know how it ended, but but they they certainly didn't. Um, the Byzantines really did think that their actions could productively improve their situation, right? They, they didn't know what was coming. And so th this is really the issue with fall dictating everything we think about decline, right? Right. So the reality of the fall, yes, I agree, is completely covered, colored the way we, we think of diplomatic actions of the period. And, and the issue, again, you know, to answer your question more directly, hinges on the idea of teleology. That's really what it's all about. You know? So if teleology links decline inevitably to fall, once you accept that inevitability, consciously or unconsciously, you can't help but negatively evaluate and judge everything leading up to 1453 as a failure because nothing actually worked at staving off the end. Right, even though it worked for like almost two centuries. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There is this kind of uh, gloom and doom, you know, about the whole thing because we know where it's going. Right. And they didn't. And we know it's heading toward a apocalyptic, you know, battle in the third act. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so everything that they're doing in the two centuries before that I think it always has this, yeah, that's nice, but, um, right. yeah. And so the way we think about decline and fall is, is to go back to your earlier comment, is largely conditioned by the title of Gibbon's book. Yeah. Um, and and there's, there's actually been intense scholarship on that question, but relating to an early, a thousand years earlier, like the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, because that's what most people think of when they think of the fall of the Roman Empire. Not what Gibbon wrote about, but right. um, only the West. And there there actually been some very interesting proposals there. So one proposal, by the way, is that the fall happened first and then the decline. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this, this model? Yeah. 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 Uh, so just to, for our listeners. So the idea is that there's no measurable decline until the empire the western empire in the fifth century falls is dismembered by these barbarian armies that take over this province and that province and then you get the indicators of decline uh you know shrinking cities you know uh, lowered standards of living you know all you know uh disruption of uh economic networks trade networks and so on um so that's a completely different kind of model I, i to my knowledge this has not been applied to late byzantium no, but I think it's, I mean, I think I've, for a long time thinking of late antiquity and, and how that field has just completely shape-shifted in the last, you know, yeah. 20 years, you know, I think I think it's high time for someone in our field to take seriously the 15th and 16th century with a little more nuance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be me. You know, it could be you. No, no. <laughs> well, I'll get to the later empire. We'll see. But so- there is, you know, there, you know, I am an art historian and, you know, there, you know, Art historians have, who've been dealing with, you know, the art, the, the art of the Orthodox world in the 16th and 17th century have been dealing with this question for a while. Right. So, um, you know, calling these, you know, exquisite pieces of silver work, for example, from the 17th century, calling them post Byzantine is, you know, that's not quite the right word. So I think there's terminology is an issue here. I, I think that um, the uh, art historian Annabellian in Athens has been grappling with some of these ideas, at least with respect to you know silver work in the Balkans and Greece. I mean, yeah, we don't yet have the terminology for um, for thinking about these things. It's it's a really really interesting question. I mean, fourteen fifty three as this end date has really not only um, affected the, the story I tell in my book of the kind of everything as a prelude to fourteen fifty three, but it's also set you know, the, the postscript the as post. well, everything after that is set by that date as well. So it kind of works both ways. Yeah, the concept of post Byzantine is, is really problematic, uh, yeah. the way it's used. And I, I was actually kind of, uh, I was hoping to get another episode on that. Um, I was, was going to contact Anna about that, um, just to do something on post Byzantine and how it just messes up how we're understanding what's going on <laughs> in the 16th, 17th centuries, and so on. So let's talk about coping with decline or the Byzantine management of decline in those last two centuries. And let's just remind our readers that two centuries is a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it we simply can't assume that whatever the Byzantines were doing was doomed to fail. Just think about it this way. Two centuries is longer than the Carolingian Empire existed, mm-hmm. right? Or the unified Anglo-Saxon state of Ang- of Alfred and so on in the in the 10th and 11th centuries. It's longer than the Seljuk empires and so on. So whatever they were doing, it, it must have paid off. Uh, it paid some dividends and some successes. And it, it, what's great about your, your book is that you look at what they did right in some respects, or at least the best that they could under the circumstances. Right. And... What I love about your approach is that you develop a very flexible uh, a model um, for how the Paleologi um, uh, um, approached the different geostrategic situations, the different kind of people that they're interacting with. And they developed, whether by design or just kind of implicitly because that's what worked, different strategies for dealing mm-hmm. with them. Um, so so could, could you tell us just generally um, how their approach toward let's say, you know, Westerners. Well, there are lots of groups of Westerners, right? So there are Western scholars, there's the papacy, there's whatever. Uh, 
versus dealing with uh, uh, Slavic Russians and so on, or even um, the uh, Muslims. Yeah, I mean, what I what I like about this, I mean, you, you, that's really one of the main points, right? To contra contrast these different facets of being of Byzantium that were being cultivated and kind of, if you will, exported selectively. Um, that's definitely one of the points. What What's interesting is is that um, <clears throat> these different facets of Byzantium often conflict each other with each other with yes. these different people, right? So. Um, you know, this idea of a unified Byzantium, well, you know, there's different parts of Byzantium that are appreciated by certain cultures and less so by others. I think, you know, in the later Byzantine period, the emperors really did compromise orthodoxy in their dealings with the West from virtually from the outset, right? So with the Council of Lyon in 1274, pretty soon after the restoration of Constantinople, that was Michael VIII. He didn't go in person to Rome, um, but he sent lavish imperial gifts golden icons, censers, silks. They sank in a ship, but we have a recording of them. And a century later, uh, John V converted to Catholicism, and he did it in person in Rome. Yeah, I think yeah. really, you know, really dramatically in person. I think we hear less about this, but, you know, this idea that, you know, first there was this private ceremony um, where the emperor's confession was read aloud, signed and sealed in front of the Pope and the Roman cardinals. And then there was this public ceremony right on the steps of St. Peter's where the emperor bowed three times. And then after kissing the feet, the hands and the mouth of the seated Pope, they rose together and went inside and said mass. I mean, that is really a, a, a dramatic, That's dramatic conversion, you know, and, and it may not have taken, I mean, they were personal conversions, quite different than, you know, the council of Ferrara Florence, but, but they had, um, they did put at risk, certainly, um, Constantinople's relationship with the Slavic Orthodox world. Um, so there's a delicate balance um, that the emperors of the final <clears throat> centuries are playing with all of their allies, right? So when Manuel II, um, he goes to uh, Europe in person in the final decade of the 14th century, this is in response to this um, eight-year-long siege of Constantinople begun in um, 1394. And, you know, it became so dire that he went in person to Europe to petition the kings of primarily France, the king of France. And, you know, at the same time as he was, you know, in Europe with um, with a cadre of advisors who were also teaching Greek and, and trying to get support for the empire, which would take the form of a crusade, um, at the same time as this was happening, the ecclesiastical hierarchy was fully being mobilized with the Slavic world, right? So from in 1400, while Manuel's in France, the patriarch of Constantinople is sending messages to the metropolitan of, you know, Kiev and all of Russia, the official title, um, telling him to raise funds from his flock in Moscow and instructing him to tell his flock that raising money for Constantinople is more important than ransoms, alms for the poor, or any acts of charity. Um, so, you know, placing the imperial capital of Constantinople way above um, kind of life um, life in Moscow. And so I think in these instances, we're seeing, you know, the, the metropolitan, who's the highest ranking ecclesiastical um, figure in Rus, um, in times of urgency, also acting as a fundraiser and as a collecting agent, yeah. right? So so I think that the idea that Byzantium is really working all fronts at the same time. Um, they needed funds, cash, or in the form of a crusade. That's really what they needed, and, and they were definitely kind of trying everything they could. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's like um, toward the West, uh, what they had to offer was ecclesiastical union uh, in exchange for an army. So they're saying, yes, yeah. we will... Be, we will become Catholics. You send us an army into the Slavic right. world. They're saying we need cash and they're banking like we are the bastion of orthodoxy. Yeah. Send us money. So these are yeah. very different kinds of approaches. You know, and they had I mean, the, the um, Moscow had sent money um, before, but it, it was to help rebuild one of the apses of Hagia Sophia. So there is the sense in which the money is coming uh, through ecclesiastical channels for ecclesiastical foundations, and the money, hopefully to be secured from the West, is going to come in the form of a crusade against the Ottomans. So, it's it's a it's a different kind of capital circulating. Yeah. yeah. 
kind of reminds me what universities are doing these days. Okay, that's not okay. <laughs> naming that, a building. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's have that discussion some other time. And <clears throat> as you mentioned earlier, with respect to the Turks, in order to stave off attacks, the emperors are having to basically become vassals of the sultan and go on the occasional campaign or. You know, and or offer sometimes, uh, you know, brides uh, even. And yeah, um, so it's it is a very diversified approach. Um, and uh, and it's when that relationship broke down right. that the blockade of Constantinople hap- happened. Right. So there was this arrangement, you know, which involved, you know, the Byzantines be, could be called upon at any moment to go to court, the Ottoman court to offer services, all these other things. But it's when. When Bayezid, when the behavior became erratic and difficult, that that's when that relationship broke down and then it became an all out siege. Yeah. And that might have well been the end had it not really been for chance, like uh, Timur, <laughs> right? Tamerlane just showing up out of the blue out of Central Asia. And it's quite an amazing period, really. Yeah. And it, so here's another 50 years for you. You know, keep <laughs> we'll at see it. What you can do. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wanted to hone in on one of the. Um, elements of strategy uh, or cultural strategy that you talk about, which is the export of classical culture to the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because this was, you, you highlight how this became a, an asset and I would call it soft power. Um, and in fact, you do in the separate uh, chapter that you've written, which I'll link to also in the title of the, uh, in the description of the episode. Um, you, you, you call it a soft power um, and that this was deployed in order to gain support in specific sectors in the, in the West. Um, and so, so I should just say that in terms of classical culture in Byzantium, there has been this, um, this sort of, there's this old paradigm that, well, we thank the Byzantines for keeping all of this stuff. Like in, <laughs> uh, one scholar called it in, in cold storage. Um, and he was critiquing that model because it wasn't that. But as if the, the Byzantines put classical culture in a refrigerator freezer um, and brought it out, thankfully, just when the Renaissance was happening. Um, and uh, I, I call this the redeeming Renaissance. That is, we don't like Byzantium. Uh, that sort of, you know, this is in Gibbon's time. But if it contributed something to the Renaissance that we like, ah, well, OK, you know, we'll, we'll give them some. Um, and and. This is a very passive kind of Byzantium, uh, but you uh, you turn that around, or turn it on its head, in fact, and present it as a much more active engagement on that front. So, mm-hmm. can you talk about how uh, classical learning, classical scholarship, can be a diplomatic asset? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 it. And you know, one of the questions, and I love the idea of the redeeming Renaissance. That really, that really does. Um, that really is Gibbon's position, right? That that even a corrupt society like Byzantium can be redeemed if it has contributed. Um, you know, a, a question of intentionality comes up a lot, right? Was this an intentional strategy, right? Intentionality is tricky because we don't really have a strategic manual for the period kind of outlining mm. diplomatic state policy. Um, but I think that in some sense, this pinpointing of intention, like how intentional was this the emperor's desire? I think that actually kind of misses the point a little bit. Um, You know, for Gibbon, Byzantium was this doomed state and even its greatest contribution had to be accidental in some way, right? That the Byzantines just happened to preserve this culture for the Renaissance, right? So Byzantium preserved, but it didn't innovate. And that that historiography is, is, is well known. I don't think I need to talk too much about it. But, you know, obviously, this isn't how people today talk about Byzantium, right? It's really how Byzantinists talk about um, the, the, the issue of, um, of, of classical studies and, and their role in, with, with the West. There is a lot of really interesting scholarship on diplomatic and cultural contacts between Byzantium and Italy in the 15th century. It's a really, there's a lot of good scholarship. And in the era, you know, the most prominent ambassadors to the West were simultaneously key figures in the transmission of, you know, Byzantine humanism, if you will, to Renaissance Italy. So this logic of a merging, if you will, of kind of educational and an educational program and, and political circumstance it implies a strategy, right? By educating the Italians in Greek learning, these figures were simultaneously cultivating a taste for Greek culture. And that cultural taste ideally would prompt support for the Eastern Empire, right? That's kind of the logic 
that is being played out here. You know, one scholar, you know, I think called it proselytizing, which I think is pushing it too yeah. far. I think it's more subtle. It's, 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 it's a really much more subtle um, process that we're talking about. I think a figure like Manuel Cruzaloros is, is a really good example. He was the emperor's friend, advisor, and ambassador who came with the emperor, taught Greek in Italy while raising money for the Byzantine cause. So he, again, was this diplomat, fundraiser, and Greek teacher all at once. And, you know, in one of his treatises that he wrote later, he explicitly links the salvation of the, you know, Byzantine state to the promotion of its culture, right? This is this is a point that he makes explicitly in one of his texts. So, so the idea of, of kind of Greek learning as a diplomatic agenda or as a cultural asset being used diplomatically, it may not have been an official state policy, right? But the idea was very much under discussion among the emperor's inner circle, right? So one of my goals was to give a little bit more agency to the Byzantine side of the classical studies equation that you mentioned, right? That by recognizing Greek teachers and books constituting some kind of a strategic um, role for the Byzantines. So my, you know, my goal in doing that was really to avoid relegating Byzantium to this passive role as preserver of antiquity, and instead see Byzantium taking on a more active process of self-fashioning in light of these circumstances, right? You know, of course, we don't have a policy book, we don't have something that outlines exactly what the emperor was thinking. Um, but I don't think you need one to see that. I think that the idea of an educational program is classic soft power. We, we understand it to be so in um, in the modern period, so why not see it then, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you, I don't think it would have been difficult to figure out what different constituencies wanted. Um, and I also think it's no accident that the that the Italian humanists were among the most vocal proponents of crusade. Yeah, and, yeah. So, and this actually this surprises students uh, when I tell them that because they think humanists they think ah that's probably anti-war, <laughs> right? But in the Italian Renaissance and and, and before and after and so on, the the humanists were among the most vocal proponents of you know mass all Christian crusade against the Turks, um, and they wrote about this quite a bit and. It's it's clear that in the alignment of interests that they had in mind, that that preserving Byzantium um, and all the classical associations that they and connections that they had with mm -hmm. it was part mm -hmm. of that, uh, and they were very uh, distraught uh, in 1453. A lot of them were, and um, so it's uh, it that's possibly one aspect of the whole approach. That is, these these are people who. Um, you know, and you can actually see the two come together in someone like Vissarion. Yeah. Who was both, you know, an expat Byzantine living in Italy mm -hmm. and, uh, well, he was also a Catholic cardinal by that point. But also he was pushing for crusade all the time for obvious yeah. reasons and, and was a classical scholar disseminating manuscripts and defending Plato. And like you, everything comes together in that guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, on that front. On that front. Yeah, on the humanist, the Renaissance humanist front. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I, I I like that because, um, I mean I, you know I've been thinking about the Byzantine not only reception of classics but how, you know what we think of as classics, <laughs> it was shaped by Byzantium on a very fundamental level. I'm hoping to have a separate episode on that, um, but also, but you added to my thinking this whole idea of the sort of more active, even strategic use of the classical tradition for mm -hmm. like state purposes. And uh, um, it, it happens more in this period, but there are actually uh, previous instances too. Like, you know, we, we know the manuscript of Pseudo-Dionysus that they sent to the West in the, was that 8th century, 9th uh, century? 9th century. And even some dealings with the Arabs earlier on. It's like, yeah, we've got these men <laughs> dangling these Greek men. Yeah, I mean, I think that they know. I don't know why we can't just accept that they knew what they had. Oh, that of they, knew, they yeah. you know, they must have known that people were interested in their in their books. <laughs> yeah, um, as we are, it's not difficult to. Yeah, I, imagine if it were Byzantium were still around and there was the same differential in in access to classical tradition. How 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 often we'd be over there, mm -hmm. uh, poking around in their archives. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about soft power. We've mentioned it. 
uh, a few times. Yeah. Uh, so where does this concept come from um, and mm -hmm. how how is it applied today and how might we apply it to uh, Byzantium? Yeah, the idea of soft power um, comes from the political scientist Joseph Nye. Um, it was first developed in around 1990 and then elaborated um, in another couple subsequent volumes that reflected on the idea after the Gulf War in 91 and the Iraq War in 2003. And the concept really entered, um, entered the public sphere uh, pretty quickly, referenced by political leaders, academics, globally. Um, even the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright wrote one of the blurbs for the paperback edition. So this is, you know, this is, has a big cachet, not just in academic circles, but political circles as well. And soft power is really just simply put the ability to attract and persuade as opposed to hard power, which is based on coercion sure. and force, right? So to co-opt rather than to coerce. So if you wanna get someone to do something, you can either command them leveraging threats, which would be violence or force, or pay economic force, or you can appeal to a kind of special relationship, a shared set of values and duties to a common goal, and that's really soft power. And Nye argues that the success um, really depends on usually a combination of soft and, power to, soft and hard power together. But what interests me about soft power um, is that it doesn't really depend on being backed by hard power necessarily, right? So the ability to attract allies, to co-opt to one side, that can happen even without force or cash, right? There are plenty of instances, and we've already kind of mentioned this, where a country's political clout far outweighs its military and economic might. Sure. And, and this idea, I think, is key to understanding Byzantium, especially in the later Byzantine period, which was really like punching above its own weight, right? Jonathan Shepard's also made this point well. Um, so as a Byzantinist, and especially as one working in the later Byzantine period, this concept of soft power is really attractive because it prompts us to think in more nuanced ways about power itself, right? That there are different kinds of power and it might not be normal. And so I've kind of, I've thought about three aspects of Nye's study that I think resonate for me about what what the payoffs of soft power and thinking about soft power would be for a Byzantinist. And the first is that soft power tends to deal in networks rather than unilateral moves, right? So rather than single strikes, military strikes, there's a much more networked approach to a situation, which obviously in the later Byzantine period, that makes a great deal of sense because there were so many conflicting allegiances, right? We already spoke about emperors converting to Catholicism and putting at risk their relationship with the Slavic Orthodox world. Um, don't even get me started about the Genoese and the Venetians. Like right. there's just a lot of conflicting, overlapping allegiances. So the idea of more of a network makes sense. Second thing about soft power is that it tends to be indirect rather than leader to leader, but tends to use intermediaries and mediators who may not have had like defined governmental roles. Right. So for for Nye, he's thinking of non-state actors like NGOs. But for Byzantium, this again makes sense. We're talking about people like the Metropolitan, who has a defined job in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, but at times has to also do things that aren't in the job description. Right. So and all of these people that may not be appointed as a fundraiser for the emperor, but are doing things for the imperial office in a kind of indirect way. Um, and then the final thing about Nye's understanding of soft power that I liked was that it, it tends to be more long-term than immediate because it ideally shapes the preferences of others, right, to be more in line with your own ideas. And so it has kind of more attenuated schedule, which, which can be both a plus and a minus, right? On the, on the con side, it takes longer to co-opt allies since it involves usually shaping a whole environment and a whole relationship. So it's more diffuse. Um, but the pros, the positive side of that is even if it takes longer to co-opt than to coerce, soft power produces potentially longer term allegiances because mm. the interests become aligned mm. so that people are doing things because they want to do them, not just for someone else, but it benefits them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like um, the humanists that, I just mentioned there. Like but, the humanists yeah. you were mentioning, and this idea of the, the crusade, right. you know, that Byzantium is not saying, just help us because we're Byzantium. They're saying, help us because... We have common interests. We have a common enemy and a common interest. We it, share exactly. this long history of common Christian cause, et cetera, and we have the same common enemy. So that's, I think, 
those ideas from soft power, they really speak to the late Byzantine context very clearly. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, I think that there's a, a, a lot of room for work on this topic in Byzantine history generally, not just late Byzantium. Um, mm-hmm. I, a student of mine actually asked me a couple of years ago, uh, because she was looking into these similar kinds of questions, though, much earlier, like in the 10th century. Like, in the 10th century, what are the Byzantines trying to do in southern Italy? <laughs> right? Because they're at a strong moment. They're a strong moment. That's a different phase of Byzantine-Italian history. Yeah. And a lot of it is this kind of, you know, give t- titles, cash, you know, bring them to the Constantinople, show them around. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, give them, a, give them a, like a, a manor in Constantinople that they can dwell in. You know, like these kinds of things. Right. Um, to produce an alignment of interests. Um, and I, th- I thought about it. I was like, no, there's, there's nothing. Like, I don't think we have any study of Byzantine soft power just mm-hmm. as a whole. I, so I think there's a lot of room for that. Um, it may be because people don't like, um, you know, you could see the negative side. You know, Byzantium has been charged with uh, kind of an effeminate image of not fighting, you know, of choosing diplomacy over war. And, you know, so I could see how some people maybe would fear that, I mean, soft power isn't the most... Ah, I see. The term, I don't know. The word soft. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, what's wrong with effeminacy exactly? I mean, (laughs) there there works sometimes. I mean, you have to choose, you know, work in certain contexts. You're not going to go blustering into every situation like a Norman. I mean, you know, how long do the Normans last? Like, it's not, okay. Okay. so there were instruments of Byzantine soft power that you talk about that they had used in the past, but that are not working, like they're not going to pay yeah. dividends in this period. So what are those? Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's right. So, um, you know, traditionally soft power was silk and relics. Those were, those were kind of these two kind of material um, examples that were used really frequently. Silk had associations of exclusivity because at some point earlier, there were, you know, it was restricted in its circulation. So it was a great diplomatic gift. But by the later Byzantine period, the silk industry was not a monopoly of Byzantium, and it was didn't have the same kind of cachet. Um, relics, it's, it's a really interesting case, because we know that they were disseminated throughout the courts of Western Europe, along with letters asking for support. And I think relics are really interesting from the the soft power perspective because they served as a kind of shorthand for common piety, right? Emphasizing a devotional stance shared by Western Western and Byzantine rulers, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, loyalty to the Pope or not. It was just this common shorthand for, you know, Christian piety, right? This unity of Eastern Western powers, which when sent along with a letter asking for support against the Turks is a way of kind of insisting on a commonality and a long history of commonality, right? This is this shared history yeah. that they that they emphasize, right? With, with Byzantium as this buffer between Europe and Islamic lands, the relic was this kind of ideal reminder of a longstanding shared past as opposed to a common political present enemy. And John Barker once, I think, brilliantly called um, Manuel II's diplomacy and his use of relics as icebreakers. <laughs> and uh, because they helped kind of open a negotiation yes. and, you know, and sometimes these icebreakers worked in that they got a conversation going. But, you know, times had changed by the Paleologan period and they weren't as effective diplomatically as they once had been. And of course, this is because after the Fourth Crusade in 1204, the Latin Crusaders, you know, had raided church treasuries of Constantinople, sending plenty of relics back to Europe. And so this meant that, you know, by the time Manuel was traveling in the West and sending letters with relics, he was offering, you know, for the most part, tiny fragments of minor relics while his, you know, royal French hosts, for example, you know, had access to the major passion reliquaries, right. or passion relics. And, you know, we should keep in mind that, you know, from the 13th century, in the 13th century, Louis IX, you know, built the Saint-Chapelle in Paris to house the crown of thorns, right? right? So, so Manuel II's relics probably looked not so impressive right. uh, against that background. Um, and I think it's, you know, in light of that shifting value of relics and silk, I think with that as our background, we can kind of see things like learning Greek, teaching Greek, Greek books, kind of filling in a gap as a kind right. of a new form of soft power in the Paleologan period. So I think it, those are related. 
What about marriage alliances? So brides. Yeah. That, that... I mean, marriage is really interesting. It's kind of an ideal soft power. If you think of the idea of building long-term networks, right? That's yeah. kind of what marriage does. You know, marriage was, you know, I'm thinking foreign marriage, like foreign diplomatic marriage in particular was certainly was part of Byzantium way before the Paleologan period. Um, you know, don't be fooled by some of those manuals that say that the Byzantines didn't give brides. They did. Um, but foreign marriage definitely assumed a much higher priority in the later Byzantine period. I think um, maybe of the final 11 or so emperors, uh, they were married to women, eight women from foreign, from significantly strategically significant areas. So, so the idea was that you know marriage instead of war was one of the policies. There's that great quote um, by Pachimedes about. I think I have it here. Hold on. Right. So, okay. So he's writing in 1299 about, uh, and he writes, peace obtains many results that the sword does not achieve and treaties which follow upon marriages. So treaties and marriages because they're solid and firm end up accomplishing that which battles and war have never achieved. So this idea that uh, a marriage alliance has more long-term power than a treatise you know, a treaty which could be yeah. brokered and broken quite quickly. Um, I don't know, you know, scholars scholars have come down in different ways about the increase in foreign marriage in the Paleologan period. Um, a lot of them, have, a lot of scholarship has read this as um, a sign of weakness that reflects the vulnerability of the state. But th that's the same attitude of kind of everything as a prelude to 1453. I, I think that that's not quite the right to, way to think about foreign marriage in the period. I think dynastic marriages, foreign dynastic marriages, held a central role in the political sphere throughout the medieval world, kind of cementing allegiances. Um, the brides, as cultural mediators, you know, these women represented a major force of artistic patronage. They played key roles in disseminating ideas, iconographies. There's there's a lot of really good current scholarship on this. I think that it, you know it's time we look at this a little more nuanced way. Yeah. I agree. I think there's uh, <clears throat> there's lots of scope for very original scholarship here. <clears throat> um, in particular, I think we need to consider, first of all, how multipolar the strategic situation was in any period. So how many agents are um, around the empire are the emperors having to engage with? And the second one is how reproducible is the asset of state of soft power? In other words, manuscripts are relatively reproducible. So silk, too, if you can produce it, but relics and brides are very unique. Like mm -hmm. you, you can't just produce another one of the same thing on a moment's <laughs> notice. Right. Um, and, and so that, I think, affects how they can be used and in what context. And, and yo, this is great. I, I now I'm going to start thinking about this and it'll interfere with everything else I'm trying. to. OK. Um, <laughs> and at one point you talk about um, this. So this is in the article about branding for Byzantium, which I found fascinating um, because I've been reading lately about uh, these books that there's one called Branding the Nation. Mm. Um, and so wherever you are, where you're listening to this podcast, anywhere you are in the world, your country is spending money hiring consulting firms to tell the government how to brand the country and sell it abroad, right? For all kinds to attract tourism to attract investment for whatever and then the government is going to take that action plan that is here are the four points that define what it means to be Canadian or Italian or whatever and try to sell those points to you the Canadian and the Italian right to get you to behave on brand <laughs> right now you, you may not know this but there are efforts being made right now to get you to behave more on brand um, and anyway, uh, this is now a major aspect of international relations and especially in the economic world. And, and I love that you brought this in, but also this idea that Byzantium is developing a number of different brands. Yeah. Right. For use in different arenas altogether, because yeah. obviously, I mean, this world isn't as integrated as ours. Um, so it's pursuing very differential strategies. 
I like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, I like the idea. I actually like the phrase on brand more than branding <laughs> as a phrase. I think that works a little better. But that, I mean, that's exactly right. I think that there are, the Byzantines are, you know, projecting a certain image of themselves to different contexts, right? And, um, you know, there isn't just one Byzantine brand. Um, there are certain more common brands that would be used more broadly. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Byzantium becomes synonymous with prestige culture in yes. all of its periods, right? Yes. Middle, early, middle, and late Byzantine period, Byzantium is associated with prestige culture, which means, you know, complicated technological processes like silk in the early period or like enamel, you know, not just art, it's like Greek fire, you could even lump into this category, right? These, these kind of prestige controlled, technically complicated cultures right. um also just like splendor and yeah. gems yeah. and the, like in, in a sense we've almost bought into that like we're still buying totally, into that the way oh, we totally. represent byzantium right as this kind of <laughs> very stratospheric prestige uh, bejeweled right. culture boy they're still sucking us into buying like that's but that's oh, what they did right right they obviously did a good job yes. of branding still thinking that Yes, actually. So, you know, now that I'm thinking about it. So, for example, you take uh, take like modern Greek cuisine, like Greek restaurants, right? They're not prestige, <laughs> right? Like the world of Greek restaurant, like in the U.S. or wherever, it's yeah. much more on the vernacular side, mm -hmm. right? Like the gyro and the whatever. It's not like the high cuisine. They, they haven't broken into that market at all or they haven't tried or I don't know. But I, <laughs> that for me illustrates exactly just how different these strategies are. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes the best way to get a sense of what kind of brand is operative, if you will, is to think about, you know, what other cultures wanted from Byzantium, like look at the Etonians, right? Like, you know, what kind of image did they want from Byzantium and did they want to participate in? And it really was this kind of overlay of prestige culture and this idea of imperium, right? It was kind of this right. overlay of those two that, that they wanted, they wanted a piece of that. Right? And Byzantium was the gold standard for that. And Exactly. It was the gold standard for that. That's what other people were looking to Byzantium for. Right. And, and all of this, so just to come to a conclusion, all of this allows you to see late Byzantium as sort of not being defined by 1453. So, right. So you see these elements of its culture and its history as living on way past that um independently of the existence of the the political state i mean i definitely think that there's a need to separate the mechanics of politics and economics from the kind of public image that a culture shows in any time right so this idea if, if we for now at least provisionally are saying okay a business one one of the byzantine brands that seemed you know long lasting was this kind of forefront of prestige culture overlaid with a sense of imperium that can be the same in these different periods, regardless of whether, you know, the territories included Asia Minor or not, or whether it was pan-Mediterranean or just Constantinople, right? So kind of, you're, it's a different metric for it, it's success. It's deterritorialized. It's deterritorialized. It's deterritorialized completely. It's de-everything. It's, it's, it's an image. It's a mobile prestige culture. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Actually, Carolina is working on something exactly like that right now, <laughs> but about the Phoenicians like 2,000 years ago, as, as you might expect. I love the Phoenicians. Yeah, she, she, she's developing a theory that the Phoenicians were basically doing, they were exporting this abstracted, deterritorialized Oriental prestige culture, like this mix okay. of Egyptian and Mesopotamian yeah. things and their own stuff. And anybody around the Mediterranean who wanted to join the club of, you know, the the people who had sort of made it, you yeah. needed to have, you needed to have the alphabets, you needed to have the ivories, you needed to have, like all those things. And the Phoenicians are just selling that stuff like mad across the Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's this, this, um, this idea of this common court culture is something that we have that is uh, this idea of prestige and elite um, objects and court cultures that had nothing to do with confession, right? So we have Arabic books, uh, you know, Arabic texts that talk about the gifts that are exchanging courts, the book of gifts and rarities. So you, there is a sense in which all of, um, you know, all of these elite cultures are all participating in this same register of cultural production, this kind of elite cultural production, which is one way of thinking about 
these different cultures in a way that's not um, determined entirely by religion and economic, you know, by religious difference. Right. Okay. Well, there's so much more to learn. That's great. I know. It's a lot. There's a lot. Okay. Uh, closing <laughs> question I ask all my guests to recommend two good books. Yes. Okay. I picked, uh, I picked a suite of books that go together. One in anthropology, one in medieval history, and neither about Byzantium. Uh, the first is by uh, Annette Weiner. It's called Inalienable Possessions, The Paradox of Keeping While Giving. And it's, uh, it's from 1992. It's not a recent book. And it makes two important contributions. First, um, she takes on one of the central assumptions in her field, which is anthropology, uh, by reassessing this kind of norm of reciprocity among so-called primitive cultures that has been written about by the kind of greats of her field, Malinowski, Marcel Mauss, Levi Strauss. Um, and she shows that all of these figures paid almost exclusive attention to circulation and giving, right? So kula exchanges, potlatch among different cultures, uh, to the neglect of thinking about really core ideas about possession itself, about ownership and keeping. Mm. And so she argues instead that certain high value items were ideally kept out of circulation. They were not given. And in keeping these items within a community, they could be passed down from generation to another. And in doing so, they accrue very specific political and historical and symbolic authority. So she calls these things inalienable possessions, the title of her book. And owning them, she argues, confers a kind of authentication. She calls it a cosmological authentication. And so you can think of the idea of a crown would be a good example mm -hmm. of one of these inalienable possessions that has, it becomes a kind of super symbolic object. It's a real thinking with book, you know, you get mm -hmm. a lot of good ideas yeah, from yeah, it. Yeah. It helps us uh, think about um, what I like, it helps us think about the implications of kind of old things being mobilized for new cultures, um, something I'm fascinated by, or, or really how objects might bear history differently than texts do, which is something I'm always wrestling with. So it's a real one of those books that just gives you a lot of ideas. Um, the second book I recommend actually develops some of Weiner's theories directly. It also appends some myths. This is by Lucy Pick. Uh, her book is called Her Father's Daughter, Gender, Power, and Religion in the Early Spanish Kingdoms. It's just out in 2017. Yeah. And here, chronologically, we're talking about kind of post-Visigothic period through the 12th century. And um, like Weiner's ethnographic study, Pick is challenging this inherited wisdom of this norm of reciprocity that has presumed a certain relationship of gender to power. So they're both really interested in that. Specifically, she's looking at um, royal daughters who were not given away in marriage alliances. So she sees them kind of like inalienable possessions a little bit. She gives close readings of charters and other documents to show how these daughters that were kind of kept out of circulation, if you will, played key roles in religious institutions, you know, through patronage and prayer that were actually instrumental in authenticating royal rule. So, you know, this idea that the king's sisters and daughters were holed up in monasteries or convents doing nothing, that's, she challenges that myth entirely. Mm -hmm. And the implications here, what I'm really interested in. So she, um, she argues that rather than kind of finding women in the historical record and insisting that they were as powerful as kings or wondering why they're not as powerful as kings, she thinks that we should be thinking about what power is, how it's calibrated and how it's distributed. Um, she argues that a king's ability to exercise power depended on this whole constellation of people, right? This enmeshed network of clergy, nobles, wives, sons, and also his own daughters and sisters in convents, and in really different ways than we might have imagined. So, so it really becomes this exploration of power itself, how power in the past is read, and how we kind of need to more finely tune our ideas about power. And um, thinking that this podcast was about soft power, I thought sure. recommending a book that actually challenges the way we think about power would be a good recommendation. Yes, thank you. I will look uh, both of those up. I haven't read them. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, Cecily, thank you so much. Uh, this is tremendous fun. Uh, we should Me do it too. again. Oh, absolutely. I had a great time. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.